The scripture reading this morning can be found in Acts 17, verses 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from, one, from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men who joined him, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Aeropagia and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. As a pastor, uh, you like to think that all your sermons are important. You realize, though, that they're not all important, and some of them are kind of forgettable. But sometimes you preach a sermon or two, and you think, this one's really important and really timely. And I got that feeling last week, and I have that feeling this week, that we're talking about some important stuff. Last week, a number of people sort of stayed after church to talk to me again today, if you want, I'll kind of meet people up here to talk about what's going on and uh, to hear some things. Uh, but I've been talking about what is going on in our world that it seems so different. Everyone here has experienced how different the world seems uh, than when we were young, right? And even those of us who are young, that we have now kids and we look at our kids and think, man, the world is different for them too. Uh, I, I said last week that there's a couple things going on, and I'm going to recap real quick. One is, that the, is the, what I call the end of Christendom. In other words, there's been a time where Christianity has basically had a home field advantage. If you weren't a Christian, you at least had been to church or knew about church. Uh, Christian thought was sort of the dominant thought. Ethics were sort of Judeo-Christian ethics. That season is over. It's no longer assumed that you go to church. It's, it's uh, now assumed that you don't go to church. We are now the minority, and Christians don't know how to be Christians, and the church doesn't know how to be a church in, an, in a time when we're the minority, where there's not social pressure to go to church. The other thing is we become post-modern, where the ideals of modernism and the Enlightenment have been sort of set aside. So people don't want to hear about organizational loyalty, 
They're more interested in being in relationship than being right. They're more interested in a homeless campaign than a capital campaign. They don't trust authorities and universal truths. And because of technology, they have a very high expectation for quality in sound and music and in experience. Right? The times, they are changing. And not just generationally, huh? How many of you have had to get on Facebook and you've had to get cell phones so that you can keep in touch with your grandkids, right? We're all facing it. Or I said last week, how many of you now have to check in at a computer at the doctor's office? And you think, why can't I just go talk to the lady sitting at the desk like I always did, right? Every, this hits us in all kinds of ways. My, my father-in-law has a, a 52 Chevy pickup and a 52 Chevy panel truck, so the front ends are the same. And I don't know much about cars, but I could fix those cars. But now when I go to get my car fixed, you have to have a computer. You have to have special tools for special parts. It takes forever to get your car fixed. Uh, and so the world is so much different. The world has changed, and the church is not quite sure how to respond. And I have an image for this. It comes from a pastor and writer named Todd Bolsinger. And he wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains. And his metaphor involves Lewis and Clark. Do you remember the story of Lewis and Clark? Lewis and Clark were explorers that were supposed to try to find a way across the country and explore the recently purchased Louisiana Purchase, right? From 1804 to 1806, President Thomas Jefferson hired them to go across the country, and the goal was to find a water route to the west so that they could start trading with the Near East. This is very, very important for this new nation of ours, that we had to get funding for it. How are we going to get funding? Well, we got to find a water route so we can go trade with the West. So they looked at the map and they said, well, on this side, there's like a little, you know, there's a coast and a little bit of hills and then there's a flat area. And they assumed the other side of the map was going to be about the same. Some of the natives who had been there before said, well, there's mountains over there. There's, there's mountains you have to cross. And Lewis and Clark said, well, we understand mountains. We're from Virginia. We've seen mountains before. <laughs> Lewis and Clark were fundamentally water explorers. That's what they did. That's what they were trained on. That's how their team went. Okay? They were canoe explorers. Go on the water. And when they came to a mountain, the expectation was we haul our boats up the mountain, and then we ride our boats down the other side. Well, what's the problem that they ran into? The Rocky Mountains, okay, which are not like Virginia, okay? There's miles and miles and miles of huge mountains, okay? And you can read the journals of some of those explorers as they, for a month, saw the Rocky Mountains off in the distance grow and grow and grow, and they began to understand this is not going to work. And they went up the mountains and they looked, and what did they see? More mountains! That's right! And so Lewis and Clark had a decision to make. They had to decide whether they were going to abandon their canoes and start mountaineering, or they were going to say, there's no water route, there's mountains here, and they were going to go back and leave the exploration of the trip to someone else. Now, they had certain knowledge, right, of morale, food, navigation. These would all be helpful in the mountains. But fundamentally, it was different terrain, and they had to figure out a different way to travel. And that's what they did. And that's where I think the church is now. We're living in a world where we've been canoeing for a long time as a church. And we understand how to canoe and we know what we're doing on the canoes. And we suddenly find ourselves in the Rocky Mountains. And we're thinking that canoeing is not working anymore. 
right? One of the things Todd Bolsinger says in his book, he says, when you find yourself in the mountains, you can't row your boat harder and expect to get anywhere, right? You can't just keep trying to do what worked in the past because now we're in the mountains and it does not work the same way. We are in unexplored territory as a world right now. We are off the map and we don't know what we're doing and we don't know where we're going. And that's true in business. That's true in all kinds of organizations. And it's really true in the church too. So what will we do to live in the mountains? Well, we have some options. One is to keep fighting to keep things the same. We could circle the wagons and not go. Okay? Just fight and complain. Well, this world is so terrible, we need to keep our, our world the way it was. And plenty of churches are making this choice to circle the wagons. But what's the problem with circled wagons? They're not going anywhere, right? You circle the wagons, you are stuck right there, and no one is attracted to a church. No one new is attracted to a church that has circled the wagons. Okay, uh, the only thing that does is, is keep the people that are there happy as long as they're there. And those churches do not have a long lifespan ahead of them. Option two is to throw off the church, to just get rid of it. And there are some great people, actually, that are rethinking church in a radical, radical way. And, and they have things to teach us. Okay, but, but in some ways, I feel like they throw too much off. There's a lot of great tradition, a lot of great theology that seems all up for grabs. Option three, though, is in some ways the hard and brave path. It's the path of searching through the canoe, grabbing what you need, leaving behind what you don't need, and heading up the mountains. And to do that, we're going to have to rethink a lot of what it means to be a church. I'm going to use a scary word for us all, and that's the word change. We're going to have to change some things. And I think to, to go in the mountains is, is not little change. It means we're going to have to rethink what it means to be a church, what it means to be a church member, what it means to lead in the church. All kinds of things we're going to have to think about. And the terrain is so new that there are no simple, one-step, known solutions for what it's going to take to be a church. That's what we would love, right? A silver bullet. If only we had a cooler worship service. If only we had a young pastor, right? If only. That one thing's going to fix it. No. Now, the world is so complicated that, that, that there is no one thing. Okay? And if I knew what the one thing was, I would be traveling around the country making a lot of money telling everybody what it was. Nobody knows because there's not one thing. What it's going to take is a lot of work as we rethink as a church who we are. But this is not the first time this has happened. Okay, author Phyllis Tickle talks about how about every 500 years, the world goes through a major shift. Okay, and the whole thinking of the world tends to change, and that leaves the church stuck trying to make changes too. So what was 500 years ago? The Reformation, right? We get, we get the printing press, we get this new form of knowledge, this new technology that brings knowledge forward, and uh, all these changes that are taking place in how people think and how people talk, and guess what the church has to do? What do we have to do? Okay, what Phyllis Tickle talks about it as is a rummage sale. And I like that image, particularly since we just had one around here. It's a rummage sale. The church has to go through all of its stuff, empty out its closets, look at all of its practices and beliefs, and look at everything and say, yep, we're taking that. Nope, that's all. We're not taking that anymore. Oh, this is something that's really, really important. It's been around a long time. We better not lose this. You've got to go through your stuff and decide what you're taking on the journey and what you're not. 
But that's a lot of hard work because we've got to really understand our stuff to do that. Okay, we've got to understand not just what we do as a church, but why we do it. And is the why that works that worked in the past the same why that will work today or is something new needed? Pastor Mark Driscoll talks about this using his hands. He said, we've got to hold certain things in a closed hand where these things cannot change, these things cannot move, these are the important things we've got to hold tight to. And we've got to have certain things that we put in an open hand and we say, okay, because certain things are not going to change, certain things we've got to, we've got to be loose with. We've got to hold on to loosely. Part of the problem for the church today is that we're, we disagree on what, hand, what goes in what hand, right? Church has had huge arguments in the last decade about whether the defini definition of marriage goes in the closed hand or the open hand, okay? We just disagree on whether the, our view of the Bible goes in the closed hand or the open hand, okay? Does a father and male language for God go in the closed hand or the open hand? We don't agree. Some churches are like this, okay? These are the circle the wagon churches. Don't change anything, no, we are, this is the 1950s. Let's keep it there, right? And you've got to tell those churches, and I'll, I'll tell you today, the 1950s are not coming back, okay? They're not coming back. In fact, we are cruising further and further away from them. And there are all kinds of liberal churches that are saying, oh, everything is up for grabs, everything. Just do whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. And we've got to tell those churches that, that there's truth claims to the Scripture, and to this faith that we can't lose, that we've got to hang on to. And so what we've got to do is we've got to look at our church, and we've got to look at each other, we've got, to, we've got to have the hard conversations of what goes in what hand. Okay, what are the things we can't bend on, and what are the things we've got to bend on? At the same time, we've got to look at the culture and be able to read the culture and understand what the culture needs. We have to study the mountains if we're going to know how to live in them. Okay, and we got to know, what, what, are the, what are the movies that people are watching? Okay, what are the pop culture icons? Why are people watching the movies that they are? Why are they thinking the way that they are? I think this is all modeled for us in this text from Acts with Paul. Paul's on his second missionary journey, and he goes into Athens, Greece. Okay, and what he does is looks around. The people of Athens worship all kinds of gods. Athens was the city of the gods. Okay? So there's all kinds of idols to all kinds of gods all over the place. So here's Paul coming in, and he disagrees with all of this. He believes in the one true God. But he's looking around, and he's understanding the culture, and, and he's speaking in the synagogues, but because he's speaking with such wisdom, the people of the city want him to talk to them. So he comes in, and what he probably should have done, the, the right, correct theological move, would have been to critique all these people for their bad beliefs, Right? But what Paul does is compliment them. He says, I see that you're very religious. Okay? Okay? He's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? You're worshiping like 150 gods here or whatever it is. I mean, you, but, but I see that you're very religious. And then he notices that they have one God marked as the unknown God. Okay? What they say is there are certain powers, there are certain things in this world we can't explain with all these other gods. There's an unnamed God that we don't know yet. And, uh, and Paul goes in and says, hey, I want to talk about this unknown God you don't know. Because I know him, and he was made known, and he became flesh in Jesus. And then he makes this quote. He says, in him we leave, live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes here from Job and from Daniel, but the end of the quote, he says, from your prophet... That is from the prophet Aratus, 
who around 300 BC writes this in a hymn to Zeus. Okay, Paul knows his culture so well, he has read the local poets, and he knows of this poem to Zeus, and he quotes a poem to Zeus to try to get to people to understand who Jesus is. Okay, that's pretty radical. Okay, that's really pretty radical, but he knows his culture that well. The problem for the people of Athens is when Paul starts talking about death and resurrection of Jesus. They can't imagine a God that would be so human they could die, and they can't imagine that a human could rise from the dead, and so they struggle with it. But, but notice Paul's open and closed hand here. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's not an open hand issue. Okay, We have to believe that. But for Paul, um, my language about God, I can use the culture's language about God to point people to Jesus. Okay, he's really willing to be open on how he talks about God, even quotes secular pagan poets, as long as we get the core of the resurrection and we're ultimately pointing to Jesus. See, we are like Paul, sharing the gospel in uncharted territory. And this, the church has been in difficult times before, but it's definitely special right now, more than any of us have known. And, and we are, as a church, trying to figure out how to live in these mountains. And Paul models for us the kind of wrestling we have to do. We have to study our culture. We have to think like missionaries. And we have to look at the stuff we do and think, does it fit in this culture or does it not fit in this culture? And do you understand the kind of spiritual depth it's going to take to have those kind of discussions? It's going to be challenging to take a look at stuff that we love and wonder if it's good or not good now. Okay? And it may have meant something to us in the past, but does it mean something for the future? And if it is going to mean something for people in the future, how do we reclaim it? How do we re-talk about it? How do we re-explain it to people in a way that they'll understand the good things that are so valuable to us that maybe younger people don't know or people that aren't in church don't understand the same way? So we got to, those are hard conversations, hard conversations to have. We're going to have to, the, the, the Christians that stick around, the churches that stick around in this difficult time are going to be those churches with robust and active faiths. Okay? They're going to be the people of prayer that are reading their Bible, that are having the hard conversation, that have deep enough community that we can look at each other and disagree. You understand? You can't just go with it. So the question I always get when I talk about this is, so what? What do we do now? And a couple of people even after church, after church last week were saying, well, what do we do with this information? And part of the problem is, I don't know. Okay? I don't know. We have to figure that out together. There's this big, long journey ahead of us, and we're going to have to navigate it as we go. But, but I do have some thoughts. And so let me put away the proclaiming the word of God uh, part of the sermon and talk to you about the word of Jordan and just propose, just guess a little bit. If I was trying to guess for our church um, what we might be doing and what this might look like, what might it be? Okay. Uh, first of all, you need to understand that the future of this church and what we do as a church will not be handed down from the pastor or from the session. Okay. It can't be like that. So even as I give you ideas, uh, uh, it, it can't work like that. It has to be us as a community making decisions about what's best as a community. Okay? This will be a series of church-wide experiments and conversations. So don't hear me demanding. Just hear me wondering. Okay, That's number one. 
Number two, I think uh, we as a church really may need to do some things to bring new life to our worship services. And uh, I think that means in some ways we need to be a little more contemporary. And some of you may not like that, okay? And uh, um, I don't always like all the contemporary. I'm a traditional guy, really. But I also think that as a church, it means we may need to actually simultaneously become a little more traditional. I've been amazed. Some of the good classic hymns that I have picked in this church that you all don't know. Okay, And I've been amazed that uh, when we've done liturgy a couple times, it's a little unfamiliar. I think we almost need to be more contemporary and more traditional at the same time, which means everybody's going to not like it a little bit. <laughs> okay, But that's my job, by the way. My job is to make sure everybody in this room doesn't like church a little bit. Okay, That's a tough balancing act to follow. Because if you liked everything that this church did, Okay? It means that this church would be perfect for you and people like you and people your age. But it wouldn't be perfect for everybody. So my job is to make everybody in here a little uncomfortable and a little unhappy. Okay? So that we understand that there are other people that worship different than we do and need things different than we do. And that's why I say it's going to take some spiritual maturity to have those kind of conversations. Because that means we have to orient our church not just towards the people that are here, but more towards the people who are not here. Okay? And, and you all have needs, and those needs are important, and those needs to be met. But the ultimate purpose of the church is it's the one organization in the world that's purposes for the people that are not already here. Okay? That's missionary work. That's Mountain Church. And that's where we are. So I think it's going to take some experimenting and a little bit of uncomfortableness sometimes, and I might as well warn you about that ahead. It'll be uncomfortable for me too, okay? But that's the way we are. And if you look around this church, we have a lot of diversity, and we have to be a church that represents that in our worship and in our style. Number three, I think we're going to need some new ministries. And the ministries of the future are going to look different. Okay, the, the, the church's mode of operating has been we as a church do ministry and we get everybody involved and, and around here we have sign-up sheets and everybody gets parked, you know what I mean? And there's going to be those things and those things are going to continue and be a part of the church. But, but there's going to also be a need for uh, niche uh, ministry, for small ministry. For somebody who says, I really care about knitting, I really care about quilting, okay, I really care about wine, and I want to gather people around that care about the same thing that I care about and build smaller communities to minister to that particular need or that particular interest. So, so what the church is going to end up being, instead of the church running all the ministries, the church is going to be the group that empowers, that trains, and that supports all those ministries that you do. Does that make sense? And that's a big difference when we're used to having church-wide ministry to support little ministry. So what do so my question for you is what do you care about? What are you passionate about? What are your what's got what your heart break for? We as a church need to help you find ways to do that ministry. Doesn't mean we create it, means you create it. Okay? I think this also number four will lead to more hands on ministry. Do you know when I came to this church, somebody told me who had moved here a little before me, they said Northminster is in some ways known as the church that won't get their hands dirty. Did you know that? That in the community, they're the church that would write a check but does not want to go and serve in person. Now, I'm not, I don't think that's actually fair, okay? But it is the reputation. Northminster in the future has to have the opposite reputation. You understand that? What we want is a community that says, wow, Northminster is really involved in caring, okay? 
And so it's going to lead us more outside of our church. Number five, I think this is going to take lots of experimenting and lots of failure. I'm going to tell you right now, we need more failures as a church. I'm going to beg you. I'm going to plead with you. We need to fail some more. Okay? And failure's got to be okay at this church. We've got to be trying enough stuff that some of it doesn't work. So we get to some things that really work. Okay? What we tend to do is we only want to do stuff we know is going to work. And if you're in business, you know that that is a recipe for failure. If you're not on an edge, if you're not, if you're not on a cutting edge, if you're not experimenting, then you are dying. Okay? So as a church, we have to fail. And I want to celebrate. Sometime this year, I want to have at least like three big failures where we get up and clap for somebody because they failed so bad. That's what I want. Okay? I want to celebrate failure. So it's okay to fail. It's okay to try. In fact, we better have some failures. Okay? That's got to be the mentality. Number six, and I think here's a big starting point. I think this all means that there's going to be a demand for more and better leadership at Northminster. Okay? Okay, we're going to need more people involved in this. Here's what happens in most churches. A small group of people do most of the stuff. Okay? Happens everywhere. It's not just true here, but it is true here because it's church. Okay? What happens is that limits what can happen, right? Because the same people doing 10 things, they can't do them as well, and they can't start new things because they're maxed. What that means is the leadership of this church needs to get better at leading, and the leadership needs to be spread out, okay, so that more people are involved so we can try new things, and so that everybody's got their one or two things they're doing excellently. Everybody see the difference? Okay. Um, John Maxwell says there's a leadership ceiling in any organization. So you're only going to grow as high as your leaders are. And if we want to grow and we want to do better, bigger and better things, our leadership's got to go up. Okay? So that means if you are a church consumer, if you come to church here but are not that involved, I'm asking you to prayerfully reconsider that. Okay? Where could you step up and lead a new experiment for our church? And if you are a leader at this church, I would ask you, where are you growing as a leader? And what leaders are you training and building up to take your place in something? Okay, we've got to start a culture of more and more leadership. Okay, I've given you a lot of stuff. Don't be discouraged, though. Yes, there is work ahead, but I think there's great opportunity. I think there's already great leadership in this church. I mean, we live in a culture that is open to belief. Willing to believe in miracles. Willing to hear your stories and your testimonies. People are longing for relationship. You know what's happening? All these people are getting relationships on Facebook, and it doesn't count. It doesn't work the same way of having someone close you can cry on their shoulder. It just doesn't. The need for the church has never been greater. The opportunity for the church has never been greater. But, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. People are looking for experiences. People want to serve. Young people want to be involved. They don't want to just come and be entertained. They want to be involved in stuff. And we have wonderful, gifted leadership here. We have people who care deeply about our ministry. And we are already doing some great things. We are already making some of these moves. It's like for me, because of some of you that have joined our, our, our church recently, and we got a new pastor, and there's just a new buzz, right? It's like the Holy Spirit has already sprayed this place with WD-40. we got spiritual WD-40 everywhere, and we are ready to go. The opportunity is here. Our future is bright. 
And if we follow the example of Paul, who does the hard work of sorting through some of this stuff, and I'm not saying we have to hold, please hear me, I'm not saying we have to wholesale change everything. We don't want to do that. We've got to be intentional about making sure the things that are important stay important, and things that move us and are important to us, that we pass that along. We don't abandon it. But we've got to do the hard work of Lewis and Clark and learning to work in a new world. It is not for the faint of heart, but I'm telling you, let's go. The culture is calling. God is calling. Let's go. Amen.